Hello and welcome to this week's Glossy Podcast. My name is Shereen Bachuk and I'm the Managing Editor at Glossy. In this week's episode, we're talking all about startups and disruption. This week's guest is Susan Nagy. Susan is a partner at 32 Late Street, a venture capital firm focused on the beauty, apparel, and cosmetics industries. And Susan was previously the CEO of Glossy Box USA. Uh, so we're also obviously going to spend some time talking about the subscription box bubble. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. So we're thrilled to have you, and I want to start with um, your background because you've sort of worked in almost every different facet of this industry. Yes, yes. Um, can you give us the TLDR of you know how you got here? Um, well, I came from years in the publishing space. I was at Vanity Fair handling the beauty category and then some fashion and luxury stuff. And then I was recruited out to Glossy Box, so I ran that for a while. And then it's I... It's a great name. Oh, thank you. It's a great name. Amazing. Glossy is the best name I've heard. Great minds. So, um, and then I went over to the investing side because I really wanted to understand the larger scope of business, what makes companies investable, where does growth come from, how can you be objective in looking at that, what does real talent look like, how do you bet on entrepreneurs, and I had the opportunity to do that from somebody who's um, been a huge influence in business for decades. What surprised you the most kind of moving to that like investor seat versus being, you know, being at Glassybox and being as a brand or as a company? Yeah. Well, I had been an entrepreneur years ago. Back in 2000, I uh, was involved in a company called Need to Have, which was a startup, an e-commerce startup way back then, selling hard-to-find foods from all over the world. So I had a little bit of a taste of what entrepreneurship really felt like. But to watch it firsthand and to evaluate it and to see how there was so much happening here on the ground floor where the larger companies just weren't seeing it or they didn't want to see it or they weren't paying attention. And, you know, literally over the past three years, I've watched the rise of this, you know, you could say threat to larger corporations of these startups that come at things with limited funds, which forces them to be more creative, a great amount of vision and very, very low fear, right? Because larger companies have this instilled fear inside of them that startups just don't, don't really have and they don't operate that way. I'm curious about sort of because there are, you know, everyone talks about, especially in this space, the fashion and luxury startups, but there are many different types. I mean, you've got like the e-commerce players that are really out there to disrupt a very specific part of that process. You've got somebody do, what are the different categories that you'd say like need disruption or you know how what? do you see it? I think about this differently. Um, I think it's very hard to break it down to the categories that need disruption. I mean, there are obviously things in, you know, heavily um, form. Uh, form-based organizations like healthcare and and finance, et cetera, et cetera. But I really think the disruption needs to happen in the way that marketers and brands approach the customer. Because I think that, what do you do? How do you shop? What do you do every day? You do a million different things. And I think that the companies that can pay attention and watch what you're doing and be where you are, I think that's the disruption really. It's less about we need, you know, more apps or a better mobile experience. Like, sure, we definitely do. We also need to make sure that you know that, yep, guess what? People are still going to malls. Everyone thought malls were going to hell, but Mm -hmm. people are still going to malls because they want to be together because camaraderie is something that doesn't go away. So how do we evolve inside the malls and inside retail stores to, to, to be that? So to me, the disruption is in the marketing and the branding and the thinking and the customer journey used to be this very classic marketing thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
we let's observe the customer journey. She has a consideration set, then she limits it based on these, you know, media clues, and then she makes her decision. No, but think about your consideration set now. It comes from everywhere. There's millions of brands that are inside that. How do you stay top of mind, and how do you convince her? And I and I think um, there are lots of interesting ways that brands are doing that. Yeah, and the best and the companies coming in, especially on the startup side, are able to appreciate that. I think so. Instead of it being like, oh, well, what we really need is a new yes. app too. Yes, yes. Like everyone's talking about, it. oh, we got to get an app. Like that kind of thing, that kind of mentality that's a little bit fragmented and, and um, doesn't feel natural and organic. So let's go back to fear. love talking about fear. I love talking about fear. <laughs> what is, um, what do you think sort of has brought that sense of fear inside big brands? I mean, we talk about sort of bureaucracy, which is obviously, you know, they're just big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has to be more than that. Um, there is more than bureaucracy. I think it's ego. I think it's expense. Um, and I think that risk is just too risky for them because they're, you know, especially for public companies, if they make a decision, they go out on a limb, either somebody's career is over because they've made a bad decision or, you know, shareholders are upset with you because you've made a bad decision. I think that there's just too much risk and they're not equipped to do that. So then how are the, I mean, how are sort of the best brands in the world, the ones that are able to kind of appreciate taking those risk factors and still able to move forward and not be, you know, dinosaurs, basically, what do they do? How can they, because it it feels almost like, well, it's impossible to do anything because God forbid you get the shareholders upset. You know, I think that, um, I'm not sure I can articulate this, but help me out here. So I think that there is this element of being internally focused versus being externally focused. Right. So when I think about large corporations and especially kind of the, the more tired ones, there are ones that are innovative and, and trying new things and they have great innovation arms and they have brought in talent that are specific to do that. But I think a lot of them spend so much time on hierarchy, on promotions and making more money for those individuals at the top who are making the decisions who have been there for a long time. Um, And I think that there's a lot about processes and structure and people are not encouraged to speak up. Right. So okay. I think that that is there inter- internally internal issues. Okay. So this is almost, this is almost like company culture stuff. Exactly. Okay. But the companies, I think that encourage external focus. So on the consumer and on their, on their employees lifestyle. So bringing everything from the outside into the company makes a company a much more relevant place. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, you know, large companies often are taking in a lot of data and they're making decisions based on data. That's fantastic. But I think there's so much more to touching and feeling and living the life of your customer. Um, I think Rebecca Minkoff is a good example of a woman who is her customer, right? I mean, she started that line. She's still that person. And she brings herself into the role and into the company. I think that that's really interesting. But... Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate sure. here because it's easy for Rebecca to mm-hmm. do that because she, like you said, she is a she is a female, she is uh, young, so she's sort of she's already in the mind of the customer. Everyone can't do that, and also the consumer keeps changing, right? I mean, ten years from now, it might be somebody else. And again, though the sixty year old white guy who's trying to sell to you know the twenty five year old female, it's hard to get but, into that person's head. But guess what? He has hundreds of 25 year old females working for him at that company. So I think it's also a lot about the employee's voice and Mm -hmm. who is, who is our person inside that is most like our customer who's on the outside and let's encourage her to talk up. So it's not necessarily the people that are at the top level making the decisions and working them down and people kind of have to be like, okay, well they said, and they have 25 years of experience doing Mm -hmm. this. But I think that there should be, you know, I'm very much kind of about this idea of, um, 
your point of view mm-hmm. and developing it. And when I'm mentoring, you know, a, a lot of young women, I always say, all you have is your point of view. I, I teach this class at Lim College Fashion Branding to, you know, grad school students in their, in their mid-20s and late 20s. Um, and I always say to them, everyone's reading the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's really looking at the same blogs, looking at the same Instagrams. All you can have is your point of view because in your, through your personal filter is where you can make real effective change Mm -hmm. because everything else is a level playing field so I think that that is the way I think about large corporations too I think that they have a lot of assets inside that they don't necessarily listen Mm -hmm. to which is where that ego I think you you were talking about the different factors other than bureaucracy that first one I think was spoke to ego a lot of it it does come down to well I don't want to listen yeah yeah I mean I guess ego is something that you can come up against in startups (laughs) also and it's it's prevalent everywhere but um but it's something you need to keep in check especially since people can become so celebrities so quickly overnight you know a darling startup can be untouchable mm-hmm. in, a, in a with one good round right yeah and that's where we'll talk about ego um <laughs> what was the second one you said ego and what did I say what what keeps think, these big brands I think it's the um um I think it's the inflexibility right and the, the and we sort of you know I think we touched on this a little bit but I want to unpack this idea of like brands as insular things because yeah. you see this and it's specifically in the fashion industry, I think you see it more than anything else. I mean, this is an industry that is, yes, going through many changes, yes. um, which, you know, we're happy to write about and we need to write about. But it does feel like it's going through these changes in just a completely different pace. I mean, just the amount of times, you know, we've seen something happen that you've been like, wait, this hasn't already happened. This company mm-hmm. hasn't already done this one tech move or tech thing or invest in this thing and they're doing it today or they're still thinking about it. I mean, what accounts for that pace that is, I mean, sluggish in a lot of cases? Well, that's one side of the coin. I think the other side of the coin is doing things just because you need to be there. Like some brands are on Snapchat that have no reason to be on Snapchat. Is that part of your strategy? Does it make sense? Does it make sense for you to have an app? You know, like apps today to me should be very much news focused or utilitarian or games. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to have an app just because everyone says you have an app. And I think a lot of what happens, the dynamic that I see coming from the publisher world is that advertisers are constantly looking for newness because they need to report newness back to their management. What are you guys doing that's new? How are we speaking to the customer that we haven't spoken to? Them? Oh, there's this new innovation coming from this this media partner that we are going to champion and be a part of. Awesome, we have something to talk about. Does that necessarily make sense with our strategy? I think that's the question that I keep coming back to. So I don't look at it necessarily as a delay. I just think like, what, what's your strategy? Well, the newness, it sometimes almost feels like brands, the strategy is just being new. Yeah. Somebody, I, I heard this great thing that like you always wonder when a brand changes something, like right. whether it's a logo or whether it launches something, you always wonder there's one of two reasons. Yeah. One is the consumers wanted it because the consumers were bored of whatever the previous iteration was. But more likely, sometimes that the brand was just bored of it. And it was like, oh, we just need to do something new because nothing's really changed. And I so think we that's change okay. Something. That's okay. That's completely okay. But also, you know, as, as a part of the strategy, as a part of the kind of evolution that makes sense. And I'm not saying strategy needs to be, you start off on what your strategy is going to be and then you need to stick to that mm-hmm. specifically. But I think that you have your tenants of your brand and you need to stay true to those. Can, can, okay, then can, my strategy is to try everything and see what sticks. I mean, that, you know, some people would argue that's the Burberry strategy. Try everything once. Um, 
and people give I mean Burby's like one of those like yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. you cannot get through a conversation about fashion and digital without somebody saying well they did it and a lot of times I think people look at brands like that and say well if it worked for them this sort of constant experimentation mm. like oh we'll be the first ones on Rebecca Snapchat. Rebecca's kind of like that too right two, those are two great examples of brands that are really innovation is the middle of their name and I think that that is part of their strategy I think that makes sense but I still I'm sure that they say no to a lot of things right it, you know I'm sure that it's not ever imagine people pitching them new technologies all day long and I think that it may seem like they're doing everything because they're probably taking more risks than a lot of other brands and also they need to stay true to the concept of innovation and they've really committed to it a long time ago too so okay so then on one hand you've got the newness and then and then coming back to the first side of the coin which was the sluggishness so it's almost like on one side people you have a lot of brands trying to figure out what's new because oh god we've got better get on that thing right and then on the other hand, it's like real change, you know, doesn't really happen. Um, one of our reporters, Hillary, she was at Chop Talk um, this week. And one of the stories she wrote, which I thought was really interesting, was about how she, she went around asking a bunch of retailers what what kind of tech they were really interested mm. in. So before, you know, she came back with the story, I was like, oh, they're going to say, you know, some VR, AR, HoloLens thing. iPads in the store. Right, <laughs> Exactly. But it actually was surprisingly, you know, prosaic. It wasn't sexy tech. It was like smart tech. It was things like, I don't know, like logistic operation software. You Makes know, sense. Things that actually would move their business. Right. So, right. I mean, that was surprising to me because to me, it feels like the majority of companies run after the sexy tech, not yes. the smart tech. The iPads in the dressing room. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a really good point. And maybe that's a point to what we were earlier talking about. What needs disruption is the sort of heavy logistical issues and where technology can really, really help us be more efficient and be more proactive and to serve the customer better. Um, but the sexy stuff works too. I mean, look at mm-hmm. Sephora. Would you, do you know what their new, you know, obviously their new store in San Francisco. Yes. It's... Well, everyone listening might not know. So I'm going to let you give a little... Oh, no, it's an 8,000 mm-hmm. square foot incredibly tech forward store with beauty classes and color matching and 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 everything sort of is and and I think the coolest thing about that going back to non-sexy tech is it all links back to loyalty it's like really like it's like CRM and like data too right well that I mean Sephora is so interesting and Ulta to an extent also because they are kind of Amazon proof in a way you know they haven't gone the way of booksellers because I think for reasons like the in-store experience is actually pretty awesome. If that's what you're looking for when you're going to Sephora, you want to play, you want to learn, you want to actually test. Makeup in cosmetics has that capability, so that's kind of an innate part of that. So does perfumes. There's no smell online. Yeah, fragrance has been a huge challenge, I think, Mm -hmm. across the board for how do you market fragrance today. It's really tough, and especially since fragrances are trending towards the more obscure is better, it's better, better. Right, yeah. Um, but I, I think that that's what's very interesting about Sephora and Ulta. Their sales are climbing. You know, they're really doing they're doing really well. Even and Amazon is not affecting their business as much because what Amazon can offer, mm-hmm. which is uh, the range of choice, free shipping, those stores already offer as well. Plus the immersive experience and the playground, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually that's that's a nice segue to talk about Glossybox a little mm. because I think the idea of sampling. Uh, I mean, that's why sort of subscription boxes, you know, really took off in beauty. I mean, yes. you, you saw that happen because like you said, it made sense for that category. And I think I was looking at um, some data on like all the new, I mean, there's hundreds of them. You get a subscription box for everything now from sex toys to you know, 
pretty much anything you, you could got think stuck about. on that one. I, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I couldn't think of another example of a ridiculous. Oh no, I found one. There was a dirt of the month club. Oh, for for gardening? Uh, no, just just dirt. It, dirt? Just dirt. Different types of dirt. Soil. Really? Oh. So for gardening? So, no, it was really just like for dirt. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what it was. It was for like gold, uh, like when you sort of pan, you know, the dirt for gold. So you, you get dirt and there's some gold in there. So you sit there, you know, using your little little shovel or whatever. And you might get gold. And you may get, they guarantee you'll get a little I got to invest in this company. That's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. Okay, whoever's listening, Dirt of the Month Club. Call me up. Call me up. Call, call Susan. Um, <laughs> before that segue. But you have sufficient passions for everything. Yes. But beauty. Yes. It's it's proof. I mean, that's that was the only category that I saw more in and growing in. And the ones that existed and got in at the beginning, I mean, they're doing fine. They're yes. doing great. Yes. There the idea of a- sampling almost, well, sampling was the way to sort of take, get away from that Amazon proofness in a yes. way. Yes. It's actually kind of, um, the whole notion of subscriptions and sampling being on the rise kind of conflicts with my overall philosophy that consumerism is in decline because people still do love samples. Like we just love what's a quote unquote free stuff. But I think the smartest boxes today are what we just invested. I, uh, last year we invested in a company called Lola, which is a yes. Prescription tampons, and I love those. And they're and they're all um, all natural. They're all cotton. Yes, they have no ran in them, and they have a great voice. And they've kind of reinvent. They've opened up the conversation about having your period. It's not. It's like sort of an easy thing. We just talk about it. It's a regular thing. And I think that boxes that very easily address pain points, like going to the drugstore and buying the tampons that you Mm -hmm. forgot to buy, are fantastic. They're and it's the time-wise, I mean, logistically, monthly, I mean, they're perfect. Could not make more sense. I mean, obviously, also the razors and, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. Um, and then I think that, so I think that's the convenience part of boxes that's really successful. And then I think that there is still this element of discovery that's very appealing. And the fact that you can know about something before someone else knows about it and share about it and talk about it and and um, and promote it and that sense of discovery is almost more powerful now I mean if I know about something it's more powerful now because it's sort of been taken away from me I'm not surprised anymore because even when I go to retail stores I've looked up the product seen it a hundred times I've seen it a hundred times most likely I'm not even gonna go yes you know yes Um, so people I think I wonder if people are almost more excited about discovery now because it's more rare it's exciting. Yeah. And the long and also I think it, it also gives an opportunity and a voice to cons- the to makers that are smaller that need to, you know, get their word out to the consumer that people are there's we have such a DIY um, community right now that people are making their own products at home or they're you know sewing their own scarves or whatever and how do you get that out to people in a way that's in a way that's more cost effective I think that it works on both ends so consumers like it but I think that makers also like it too because it's a generally lower cost way to get feedback and get their products out to consumers so, so can subscription boxes scale can all subscription boxes scale then it depends on your strategy but sure you know like there's there are different demographics and different people that like different stuff and as long as you can mm-hmm. categorize that accordingly it, it makes sense um and, and let's go back to the publisher thing mm-hmm. too because it's this is all sort of related mm-hmm. because it comes back to that idea of everyone's trying to get at a piece of the pie and be almost it's amazon proof and a lot of things proof in that way and you've got a lot of new relationships that are hard to deal with. I mean, you've got, okay, you've got distribution. Um, This is an industry that didn't really want to change because it didn't feel the need to change for many years, many decades, and suddenly Instagram came. Mm -hmm. And Instagram Mm -hmm. became the place their consumers were 
not just present, but also looking at for trends and inspiration. So suddenly they had to start paying attention to, you know, we call it the Instagram effect. It's just paying attention to these trends becomes imperative no matter who you are as a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if sort of Snapchat will be the next, you know, the next thing. A lot of people are already talking about Snapchat as the new, you know, big fashion brand favorite. You've got the Amazons of the world. So you've got all these external factors, I think, really affecting these industries, both publishers, both um, brands. Mm-hmm. How do you think that's going to shake out? That's a loaded question. Um, in terms of narrow it down for me. When I mean, you, where are we where are we going to go? And we call it, it's like a frenemy relationship. On one hand, the dependence on these platforms is increasing both from publishers and on brands because mm-hmm. they depend on them for so many things. At the same time, it's not very healthy. And I also wonder if it's a mindset change for a lot of these fashion brands who've for years gone without having to do anything if they didn't want to do it. Right, right, right. I mean, everything has shifted, right? Like the the sort of power has shifted from the owner of the brand to the consumer of the brand. And you see that in everything from customer service to, you know, even um, customers requesting new product or there are, co- there are beauty companies out there where customers are actually De- product doing product development and then pitching it up to the to the brand so that whole thing has shifted I think um, I I feel like it kind of goes back to strategy in a way and what do you want your brand to be and how do you want to communicate your brand to the world and what are the most effective channels to do that I think everything doesn't fit for everybody so as long as you know who your brand is and you know who your customer is and who she or he is turning into and changing and what their habits are I think that you're a lot smarter to what where your brand needs to be mm-hmm. you talk about brands with the, with with a soul yes. right that's that's yes. I remember that you were referencing it a while in a few different conversations we have um and and what does it mean it just means that uh consumers are smarter about authenticity and we all are because we are so inundated with brands all the time so we respond to things that grab us emotionally and that tell a story and that actually have some effect onto our shared world that's positive. So um, one of the brands that I love right now, just recently launched a couple of months ago, is called The Lost Explorer. Mm-hmm. You heard of it? No. It's David de Rothschild's company. And, and him as a founder, I think is really interesting. He has been devoted to nature for so long. He he sailed a boat called the Plastiki. Do you know about this? It was, he sailed it. He built a boat made out of plastic bottles <laughs> and sold it and, and sailed it from San Francisco to Sydney. To was ra- it, to was raise this awareness. like an awareness thing? Okay, yeah. Yes, and this was years ago before okay. before he launched this brand. So the brand is the brand today is called the Lost Explorer. It's a lifestyle brand and it's designed to give nature a voice. And um, it's just so... I feel like everybody's a lifestyle brand these days too. Yeah, everybody <laughs> aspires to be, uh-huh. but most don't most don't really work <laughs> I, I think that this one is, is is terrific because I think that the founder really has a story I think the brand has a soul um, there's history there there's texture there it's actually visually extraordinarily appealing and um, you know they're going about it the way of you want to be a part of it it's launched with a mezcal before anything else what kind of lifestyle brand launches with a mezcal it's brilliant <laughs> so the idea is you know to generate awareness and to generate mm-hmm. conversation and then there are there's a men's line coming out from there and there's a travel line and then there's products coming out okay. and and every brand to be successful sort of your you know or, or to have that sense of authentic connection or basically to have me not believe that they're just a brand but more than that exactly like um um, Cotopaxi, that brand, the gear for good, 
which and they're and they're all about sort of again it's it, it feels like they're not pulling the wool over someone's eyes literally you just nailed it right. yes you feel like you trust that brand you want to be a part of it I think the cool factor is really important also like are they creating something that you want to be aligned with and want to be associated with I think Lost Explorer is doing a great job of that yeah um but but Coach Epoxy's strategy of like it's so measurable it's so literal you know one water bottle provides water for six months. Like, mm-hmm. wow, Can't, you have the power to do that. Which it's is, amazing. I think, why, you know, even Warby Parker, I think it's funny because I feel like they've almost, it's still a big part of their message, but it, it, people don't, it's just become such a, that's part of their brand that actually Warby Parker, yes, it already gives you the cheap glasses. It's already disrupted like a super expensive industry. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they have that like good side of it yeah. too. Yeah. And I think that they also, consumers can also smell when it's not true because everybody knows that when you, you're, doing a startup today you what's your give back strategy right it's kind of just part of your marketing strategy <laughs> it's part of their decks now probably right, right? Yeah. and that's like shouldn't it be part of the marketing strategy if it's real it's part of your brand strategy it's mm-hmm. part of who your identity is who the brand personality is it's like a sort of a you there's responsibility at the genesis like real responsibility at the genesis of the brand i think that's uh, and that brings me sort of one of one of the things i want to talk about we could about sustainability mm-hmm. and i think that it's you know the idea of um, there's been a lot written about obviously garment factories, garment workers in some pretty terrible conditions, may, which really are responsible for a lot of the fashion and especially the fast fashion. Um, and then you have companies like H&M, which are saying, okay, we're going to, you know, have sustainability initiatives. We're going to do all these things. And I, I'm sort of, again, that's sort of another place to go because in a lot of cases, I think they do it because there's increased consumer attention. People are so aware. Of course. I mean, people did not talk about this. It's like everyone knew that there were sweatshops, but I think today it's come to the point where people are actually looking at labels and saying, no, this is not something I will wear. Mm-hmm. Um, how does a big brand, you know, the one that's existed for a long time and doesn't have the luxury of saying, here's my, you know, here's my like do good lifestyle, authentic communication because people still sort of think of me as a place I buy, you know, $10 t-shirts. Um, I think that's the really hard place for a lot of these, for a lot of these companies. Yeah. The sustainability factor, because there's the cost ramifications are so extraordinary that it's very hard to compete that way. You know, I think that it's about giving consumers a choice to in store. I think that some brands have done a great job of saying, okay, these are very responsibly made garments. It's- Although that always makes me laugh because you know how they have those sections. Yeah. Like these are the eco-conscious, but the other ones are the, are the real bad ones. I know. <laughs> like, it always draws attention to a thing that makes me slightly uncomfortable. It if I'm kind not of there. does. It kind of does. And the styles tend to be a little bit different like why do they think that customer's dress is so differently than oh customer? yeah because they all want to wear hemp it's sacks, so you know? bizarre like that is to me that's like just not this is the eco-friendly section right. of the store you obviously this is don't want to wear color right and this is the non-eco-friendly for people who have no soul right. but look good <laughs> it, it, it drives me nuts i walk into stores it, when it, i see it that. Nuts. did you have you heard these um rumors about kickstarter starting a fashion no yeah you heard it here first go ahead uh well um I think this is, speaks to a lot of what fast fashion is doing and how they are you know, underselling a lot. They're able to be very flexible on their costs and consumers have demanded the lower cost for a long time. Um, but there's a large segment of people that are dedicated to making more responsible clothing. Um, and Kickstarter has recognized that as a growing, strength, a growing trend. This is all a rumor. Um, and they are they're looking at doing something um, with with brands that are more environmentally friendly. Again, the like confluence of it's the Lola's, you know, of the world, something yeah. that you actually need 
with the added, I think, understanding of, oh, it is natural and it isn't bad for you and it's got all those and it'll come delivered to you right and um, it looks cool and it looks cool uh before i let you go because we are almost out of time i want to ask you about uh tech that you are actually excited about what um what sort of excites you about what beauty brands fashion brands whoever's using that you really think will go places tech that i'm excited about oh my gosh there's so much i think that um I think I would love if Barney's could come to my living room and I could try on clothes in my living room through augmented reality. That would be amazing. I would invite a bunch of friends over and we would have a party and we would try on clothes. I think that'd be amazing. Um, and obviously those kinds of things are in the works right now. Mm -hmm. I think... Um, so basically home, it's, it's that, again, it's that, it's the nice middle ground between having it shipped to you in a box and then you having to return it. Um, right. But let me have the social experience around it. The social experience. Because yeah. the social experience of shopping has, again, been lost in a lot of this. Exactly. Because shopping's, I mean, what is shopping about? Shopping is about spending a Saturday afternoon trying on clothes. I mean, we still do that. It's still a part of, I think, many people's lives. Unfortunately, people just go home and then buy them on Amazon or something else later. That's the, that's the real clincher. Yeah. Not as fun. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> so I fun back to shopping I would okay. I would and experiential you know like I want I want to I want to walk into a store and and have a reason to be there and feel the brand and if I identify with that brand it's so rewarding to be a part of it absolutely great Susan thank you so much for being oh, on this was the show super fun. we're so happy you were here and thanks to you for listening uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes we're also on Stitcher as of two weeks ago um, and leave us a review if you like what you heard we'll see you next week